Man is born free and everywhere he's in chains. <coughs> so wrote uh, the 18th century philosopher Jean, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His book, The Social Contract, was actually, it was a great cry for freedom. Rousseau profoundly influenced the French Revolution, which uh, similarly had freedom, liberté, as one of its uh, uh, cries. But something went horribly wrong. The French Revolution turns into uh, Robespierre's reign of terror and people were not free. Or in the 19th century, uh, Karl Marx wrote another revolutionary book, The Communist Manifesto. At the end of that book, he wrote, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. But when actually communism came into being, did the workers lose their chains? That's the reality of that's illustrated best by an old story of a Marxist orator who was waxing eloquent on a street corner about the, the freedom that they would enjoy after the revolution. When we get freedom, he cried, you'll be able to smoke cigars like that, pointing to an opulent gentleman walking by. I prefer me fag, said a, said a heckler. When we get freedom, continued the Marxist, you, Marxist, you'll be able to drive cars like that, pointing to a large Mercedes driving by. I prefer me bike, said the heckler. And so it went on until finally the Marxist could bear it no longer turned to the heckler and said, when we get freedom, you'll do what you're told. (laughs) And so it happened. And then again, the rhetoric of freedom emerged in the 1960s as a a great rallying cry for, for young people seeking individual liberty and freedom. George Best, who died this week, was one of the icons of that era. An article in The Observer recently described him as a hero of our times. But then it went on to say, George Best has achieved iconic status because his life has perfectly reflected society's fixations. How true. 22,000 people a year die of alcohol-related deaths. Number of uh, lonely divorcees rises inexorably. When, when George Best died this week, in a sense he was typical. His death was another nail in the coffin of that, that 1960s idealism. How is it then that great movements of freedom so often descend into bondage? And let's not, let's not delude ourselves. Churches can do exactly the same. There are few more repressive institutions than a church that has gone wrong. Christians are motivated by the promise of freedom, but somehow, actually, freedom can slip from us like um, sand through our fingers. That's what the Apostle Paul is fighting for as he writes this letter to the Christians in Colossae. In chapter 1, he he reassures them how delighted he is in, in, in hearing about their faith, hope and love. He is praying that they would grow in that joyful freedom. Um, but as we saw last week, he, his experience 
of keeping them free is a struggle. It involves suffering, it involves affliction, it involves toil, it involves agony, he says. The real paradox here. Paul is fighting for freedom, he says, but it is a desperately hard fight. Why? Well, it seems there is something in the human heart, perhaps something even in the spiritual dimension of this universe, which takes people's longing for freedom and, if it possibly can, corrupts it into a, you know, into a terrible form of bondage. It happens again and again in nations, in societies, in human individuals and even in churches. Paul's concern for these Colossians, you see, is that they will do exactly what human beings do again and again and again. They will actually, in the end, embrace a form of barely Christianised bondage which doesn't set them free at all and is actually not Christian at all. (coughs) And he's saying to them, stay free. First thing he says to them about that, Um, is what we must do to stay free. First of all, in verses 6 to 7, positively what we must do. Um, Just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Our freedom, he says, comes from our relationship with Christ. We accept Christ as our Lord, our boss and then we continue to live in him. Our hearts united to him. He says there are four dimensions of that that union that he is looking for. He, He wants them to be rooted in Christ. You see that? Like a plant that gets its its nutrition from the soil. We are to have roots that go deep down into Christ so that we draw strength to live each day from Christ, so that we find encouragement from Christ, so that we find our need for love satisfied in Christ. He becomes becomes the centrality of our lives and the source of our life and nutrition. Then he says, we are not only to be rooted in him, we are to be built up in him. The image of a house there, which has got the foundations laid, but it needs completion. Life needs, over a period of time, to be built around our faith in Christ. He's looking for Christians then, who habitually are building on that foundation that God has laid in their lives. So that slowly, over time, They become what they were meant to be. Then he says we are to be strengthened, or I think better, confirmed in our faith. That is, as we put our trust in God, um, uh, we, 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 we find through experience that what he says is true. That the faith that we had been told about actually works in our lives. And so that faith is is tested and lived out and confirmed and strengthened in our lives. So we know it's not just in our heads. It's actually deep down inside us. 
through experience. And finally he expects that he will see these Christians overflowing with thankfulness. Of course there are hard times, but if we become rooted in Christ, as our lives are built up in Christ, as our faith is tested and we find uh, and found to be true, mature Christians always find themselves to be thankful people. Wasn't it extraordinary those ladies going to prison there? Their genuine joy that they knew Christ, that they were suffering for him. All other things were secondary. I see all sorts of uh, uh, distorted growth amongst Christians, I have to say, and I, and I know failure in my own life. And I know what's gone wrong. Sometimes we're like pine trees with, with, with no more than superficial roots. As soon as a gale uh, um, uh, blows, we just uh, fall over. We are called to be like oak trees with deep tap roots which keep us alive in drought and storm. Some Christians never actually test their faith so that they can confirm and strengthen it in their own experience. They never go out on a limb for God. They never do anything which, which, uh, which really costs. And so after a few years, they wonder why their faith is so unsatisfying and weak. See, if you sat in a, t- a wheelchair for several years, I guarantee you would be unable to walk. Your limbs would have atrophied. So it is, if we ex- do not exercise our faith, at all for a few years. Is it surprising that our faith cannot bear the weight of life's experience? Now we are called to grow then in Christ in those ways. But then uh, positively, uh, sorry, negatively, after the positively, verse 8, Paul tells us what we must do. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition, the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. There are three things here, he says, which can take you captive, literally literally make you prisoners. The first is what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophy. Paul's not anti-intellectual. He would not suggest that... uh, Uh, Christian students shouldn't do a philosophy degree but he is aware that clever people can weave complex looms of apparent logic which in the end just takes people captive and enslaves them. It has to be said philosophy actually in this this country in the 20th century was, was dominated by those sorts of people. I mean perhaps perhaps actually one of the most significant figures was, was A.J. Eyre, the Professor of Logic uh, here in Oxford. Now, Eyre's personal life was sordid in the extreme. His philosophy was aggressively anti-Christian and he himself maintained that there was no connection between that, between his philosophy and his personal life. But the connection ran deep. It suited him to believe that Christianity wasn't true. And he built a complex web of thought around that. As he approached death, actually, Freddie Eyre himself 
was unsatisfied by his philosophy. His widow, D. Wells, recalled, as he got older, Freddie realised more and more that philosophy was just chasing its own tail. Now what he'd built his life around was what the Apostle calls hollow and deceptive philosophy. And let's not think such philosophies grow up only outside of churches. I wonder what the Apostle would, uh, would think of some of the complex demonologies that are prevalent in some uh, church circles today. Every few years, it seems to me, a new book comes out which promises us to liberate us from bondage by identifying demons or intergenerational curses or territorial spirits or, or, or something like that. Esoteric meanings of hitherto unnoticed scriptures are explained with an, in a s- astonishing detail and somehow Christ just moves off into the, into the, in, into the shadows. Notice, Paul, it is Christ who keeps us free. Our relationship with him. Not complex philosophies. They enslave. Second thing that takes us captive, says Paul, is, is human tradition. Churches are so prone to that, aren't they? The godly wisdom of yesteryear so easily becomes entrenched as the, uh, uh, as the only way to do it today, despite the fact that circumstances may have changed. You know, some of the churches I grew up in, uh, or knowing in younger years, insisted on a 6.30pm uh, uh, evening service when uh, the, the gospel was preached for unbelievers, despite the fact that they hadn't had an unbeliever come through the door in years. They'd actually long since forgotten that these evening services arose partly because a century ago enterprising forward-looking churches um, uh, uh, put in electric lights into their, uh, uh, into their buildings. And everyone flocked to see this newfangled invention. So they said, aha, we'll have a gospel service and tell them the gospel. But that's all got lost, you see. And don't think we are immune. On Sunday evenings, um, we've become radical enough to introduce sofas. It won't be long before someone's solemnly telling me that's, that's of course, deeply biblical. After all, didn't Jesus say, come to me all you are weary and I'll give you rest? And who knows, perhaps a generation hence, of course, the sofa will be an item of the faith. It happens. Paul says uh, we uh, should not be taken captive by human traditions. Every generation is free to re-examine from the ground up how it should live with Christ. Nor should we be uh, taken captive, he says, by the basic principles of this world. Scholars actually argue what this phrase means. Originally, Greek philosophers used to use that to describe the the four elements that you may have learned about at school, earth, air, fire and water that they believed in. But by Paul's day, it had come to mean spiritual forces that lay behind those elements. And Paul seems to be using it with that meaning in his mind. Somehow, he's saying the world, physically and spiritually, seems to work in a way which drags people into slavery. That is the, that is the, the, the basic principles of this world. They enslave you. 
Surely that's why Rousseau calls for freedom and France gets Robespierre, or Marx calls for freedom and Russia gets Lenin, or the 60s generation calls for freedom and we get George Best. Christ offers us freedom and we must not be dragged back by those forces into slavery. What we must do is fight with all our might as we focus on Christ. And uh, uh, in order to expand that, Paul tells us at some length what Christ has done for us. Verses 9 to to 10, for instance, we learn that uh, we have been given fullness in Christ, completion in Christ. And then in verses 11 to 15, Paul expands what he means by that fullness. First of all, he says, we were um, circumcised in uh, verse 11. Um, In him you were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. He's using the Old Testament language of circumcision, but he clearly means something different. This is a circumcision not done by the hands of men, as all circumcisions, uh, real circumcisions were. Some people have suggested that what he means is that you were baptised. He uses that sort of circumcision as a metaphor for baptism. He does refer to baptism straight afterwards, and they suggest that, that for Paul... The New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision is baptism. I don't think that is supportable because Paul is quite explicit. He is talking about a circumcision not done by the hands of men. Baptism is as much done by the hands of men as as circumcision was. He's talking here about an act of God, something that God does in people and for people. Others suggest, I think, uh, with, more, uh, with more support, that Paul is describing our circumcision, uh, our conversion when he uses circumcision as, as, uh, uh, as this, in this metaphorical way. He's, he's, he's talking about our conversion in various places in the New Testament. Um, our conversion is talked about as having our hearts circumcised. So the suggestion is that Paul is talking here about a a spiritual change in our hearts where we are born again. That's what he means by we were circumcised. And although that may be true, the problem with this uh, interpretation is that everywhere where that spiritual circumcision of our hearts is described, it's made plain that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. We are changed inwardly and... uh, come to belong to God, which of course is what circumcision stands for as a sign, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul here is talking, using this metaphor, for something that is done by Christ. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? So actually I think the the best uh, solution... The best solution for what he's talking about uh, when he's talking about um, um, being circumcised here is he's talking about 
Christ's death on the cross. That is the work that was done by Christ. It seems that Paul is suggesting that Jesus' death was in a sense the fulfilment of that Old Testament rite of circumcision. In circumcision, of course, a small piece of flesh was cut off. But, says Paul, Christ went the whole, lo- whole hog. He, he put off the body of flesh, as, he, as it says uh, uh, quite literally. Jesus died. Jesus surrendered him, his whole self to death. Dying for our sins. So that we could be assured that we belong to God. An Old Testament Israelite who was uh, worried about whether he belonged to the covenant people of God could uh, um, look at his own body and be reassured. He, he, he belonged to, those, to God's people. A New Testament believer who is worried about whether they belong to God looks at the body of Christ as he dies on the cross. He fulfilled and completed that uh, um, um, being brought in to God's people as he died on the cross. We were circumcised, says Paul, using that Old Testament language. We were made members of God's people through Christ's death. Not done by the hands of men, done by Christ. And what we are to do then is to be united with Christ through the symbolic act of baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When we, when we were baptised, say, says Paul, there was a sense in which we, we enacted symbolically something profound that had happened. Jesus had died and rose again and, says Paul, so do we. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. We were circumcised, we were made alive, he says. Given new life. It begins in our hearts now. But ever since Jesus rose from the dead, we can be absolutely assured that one day it will be completed as we rise from the dead and meet God face to face. And the key thing that Christ needed to do was to forgive us. Do you see that as well? You are made alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulation that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. There is no law, there is no written code that can condemn us. We are free, says Paul. And those hostile spiritual forces which love to drag us down to condemn us 
are now, says Paul, utterly vanquished by Christ's death on the cross. Verse 15. He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a play on words because, because um, um, the, he uses the same word that is, is used to describe Christ stripping off of his body on the cross as he died. But now he uses it to describe the disarming, the stripping of the spiritual forces of evil who have no weapons now because Christ has died for all our sins. And when sin tempts us, when sin trips us up, when we uh, um, think that some new insight or some new technique will liberate us. What we need to do, says Paul, is just see more clearly what Christ has done for us and therefore to fall more deeply in love with Jesus himself. It is, it is the mark of an insecure person of a person who hasn't really grasped that, that they find themselves falling prey to those human traditions that seem to give so much security and shape to life and yet enslave us. Or those hollow and deceptive uh, philosophies that seem to give us so much insight into the real um, mysterious and intricate uh, machinations of what's going on in this world. but actually bind us. We break free from that by seeing what Christ has done and simply enjoying knowing and loving and living with and in Jesus Christ. So, says Paul, if that, if that is how you stay free, who should we avoid? Well, we uh, find it, uh, that being unpacked for us in verses 16 and onwards. The first thing he says is avoid legalists. Verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Note he's particularly picking up on religious laws and customs. There is plenty of right and wrong behaviour that we must take seriously and we'll see that later in, in Colossians. Paul is not saying it doesn't matter at all how you live. He's saying, actually, you will live in the way that God wants you to live if you really come to know Christ. And religious laws and customs and all of those other things draw us away from that. There are plenty of people out there who would love to regulate all sorts of irrelevant things for us. Legalists offer false comfort. 
every moral conundrum we have. They have the perfect solution and ten Bible verses to back it up. They will tell you what to wear, what to eat and drink, exactly how much money to give away, who to date, how to date them, why their church is the only really biblical one. They suck people in with tender consciences and they enslave them. And I have seen it again and again and again in churches. Avoid legalists. Avoid people who are constantly majoring on all the details of how we should behave. Avoid those who go beyond what Scripture says. They will assure you that what they're doing is they're giving you a a healthy framework which uh, if you stay within that framework then you will not... uh, um, Uh, sin against God but what they are doing is exactly what the Pharisees in the New Testament did the Pharisees generated a massive long list of things that they ought to uh, that people ought to do from their careful study of scripture and they said scripture itself is just too complex for an ordinary person they just need to obey this list this list they said is a fence round the law. If people obey our list of things, they will be safe. And in doing so, they descended into the bondage of legalism. There is no uh, escape, actually, for looking carefully at what Scripture says. Avoid legalists. Now, I don't very often get angry letters, um, but um, funnily enough, I've had two angry letters over the years on exactly the same subject. Um, They have uh, come to me when I have uh, raised some doubt over whether the Sabbath is any longer a, uh, um, a, a Christian priority. I find that amazing when Colossians 2.16 says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or by a Sabbath day. It is amazing how hot under the collar people can get about things which scripture says quite explicitly are not central. Do not allow yourself to be judged by them. Secondly, says Paul, avoid the super-spiritual. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for for the prize. Super spiritual types are so intimidating, aren't they? They seem to get words from the Lord, they have dreams and visions, they are absolutely confident that they know what God is saying today. They tell everyone about it. Sometimes, frankly, I just feel confused about what God is saying today. I feel inadequate as a pastor sometimes telling someone I I frankly don't know why they are suffering as they are 
and, the, and, and, and my inadequacy is, is, is added to when they've got a friend uh, whispering in their other ear that they know exactly why. But you see, then I read Paul's assessment of super spiritual types. Such a person, verse 18 again, goes into great detail about what he has seen. His unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. They are puffed up. They are unspiritual. They've lost touch with Christ, the head. It is enough to know Christ. It is enough to be assured that we belong to Christ. It is enough to know we are forgiven, we are made alive, we are assured of our eternal future. But one day God will gloriously complete the process he has begun. As we fall in love with Christ, as our hearts are united with Christ, as we grow, as we are rooted and built up and our faith is tested and we find ourselves more thankful, we will mature as Christians and stay free. I, I, I want to say to you this morning, most here these days are younger than me. I want to say to you that is hard work sometimes. And other solutions seem to be easier to start with. Simple answers. Strict religious practices. Wonderful uh, um, spiritually illuminating experiences. But what will keep you going as a Christian, what will keep you free, is a firm, solid appreciation of what Christ has done for you. All else will fall into place if he is at the centre.